afternoon and welcome to the 211th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today is a COVID calls public health discussion with COVID calls alumni guests, James Dodd and Esther Chernak. To reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, January 28, 2021, there are 2,181,853 deaths globally from COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 25,651,968 cases of COVID-19 reported in the United States. There are 430,643 deaths in the United States from COVID-19 reported today. That's up from 426,052 reported yesterday. As of today, there are 102,000 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United Kingdom. A way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. This is an announcement that was posted today on GoFundMe. This is a bereavement fund notice for Dr. Kamal Osman, frontline doctor. And this was written by Drs. Prashant Amila and Kieran Flanagan. Those of you who may be unaware, our beloved colleague, Gamal Osman, consultant in acute medicine, passed away in the early hours of the 28th of January, following a prolonged intensive care unit admission with COVID-19. He was a long-term locum consultant at North Bristol NHS Trust for the last two years, and could always be relied upon to offer a helping hand. He was always smiling and kind to everyone around him. Kamal was generous, calm, and an extremely popular member of the acute medical team. We're all aware that COVID poses a higher risk to Black, Asian, and minority ethnic groups and older patients. At the age of 60, Gamal was well aware of this risk, particularly as he lost his brother to COVID in September of 2020. Despite this tragedy, many conversations with friends, colleagues and relatives trying to persuade him to minimize his risk. And despite his awareness of the risk involved, he was committed to continuing to care for acutely unwell patients with COVID. Memorably, he rallied his colleagues by saying, this isn't a time for cowards. Tragically, he contracted COVID-19 three weeks prior to the introduction of the COVID-19 vaccine to frontline staff. His passing is devastating to all of his colleagues, but even more so to his wife and seven children who now have to deal with both the day-to-day -day trauma of bereavement and with the financial burden it now places on them. 
Gamal was the sole breadwinner for his family. Six of his children are under 20, with the youngest being only seven years of age. As such, they are completely dependent on his earnings to support their day-to-day -day subsistence, education, and rental of the family home. His friends and colleagues were constantly hoping that he would beat the odds and survive this disease, but sadly, this has not come to pass. We would like to repay the generosity that Gamal showed and embodied every day by trying to help his family through this difficult time. If you have encountered Gamal in your working life, or if you just want to help and feel that you would be able to contribute to the well-being and financial security of his wife and children, we would urge you to donate whatever you feel appropriate. And this is an announcement today of the death of Dr. Gamal Osman from the GoFundMe page, and you can find that easily just by going to GoFundMe and looking for Dr. Gamal, G-A-M-A-L, Osman, O-S-M-A-N. Okay, I'm going to turn to the conversation for today, and I'm going to introduce two guests. Really looking forward to speaking with them. My first one really needs no introduction, but I'm going to anyway. Dr. Esther Chernak. Esther is a professor in the Department of Environmental Health in the Drexel University School of Public Health, and she has a position in the Drexel University College of Medicine. She's the director of the Center for Public Health Readiness and Communication at Drexel University. And prior to joining the Drexel faculty in 2010, Dr. Chernak worked at the Philadelphia Department of Public Health for over 25 years. Second guest is James Dodd. James is a consultant senior lecturer in respiratory medicine at the Academic Respiratory Unit, University of Bristol in the UK. His research focuses on the multi-system impact of lung disease, and he is currently undertaking neuroimaging studies of brain pathology and cognitive function in patients with COPD. His clinical work is at Southmead Hospital, Bristol, where he has responsibility for the care of patients with complex COPD and asthma. James and Esther, thanks for coming back to COVID Calls. No problem. Thanks. Happy to be here. So it's a little late for you there, James, after what I'm sure was a busy day. Um, it's a little earlier here, but still the end of a busy day. So thanks to both of you for coming on. Let me start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling from and how the pandemic is looking there today. James, let me start with you. Thanks. Um, well, first of all, thanks for the tribute to Dr. Osman. He's a very close to home and um, the terrible, devastating news we heard this morning. He's a colleague in a in hospital I work in. I didn't have the uh, honor of working with him directly, but his loss is very uh, acutely felt by our, by our colleagues. He's clearly a wonderful man and father and uh, a very courageous physician. So uh, thanks for that. Um, and I thought to with his, his family and children and friends and, and the colleagues who worked so closely with him in our medical unit. Um, uh, I think, so uh, the update here, I mean, in Bristol, the first wave, we were generally less, well, uh, we weren't as badly affected as the rest of the UK. The Southwest was generally, the numbers weren't high, but certainly the second and now the third wave as a, as a relatively big urban center, our numbers were high and uh, certainly our healthcare admissions have been high. We're just <clears throat> a couple of weeks into our third lockdown um, it's been very, very busy at work in the hospital, um, and uh, a lot of the kind of the, the feelings of the kind of the novelty of the lockdowns in the summer have very much worn off in a kind of drizzly, cold, dark British winter, and everybody's fed up of it all. And uh, schools are closed. It's it's a it's a, it's a lockdown. It's a stay-at-home order, and um, essentially, uh, parents are trying to juggle their lives of um, homeschooling and 
and trying to trying to work. And um, yeah, we're just trying to see the lights at the end of the tunnel. Our numbers are starting to come down, um, but it's very slow. Um, and uh, you know, the vaccine rollout is our is our kind of strategy out of this. So that's where we are, kind of locally and nationally. Really, it's a national lockdown. Well, we'll come back to the vaccine issue in a minute. I'll, thank you for sharing the story of Dr. Osman. And I just want to um, let people remember so they can go back and find this um, episode. You were on actually on May 22nd. We talked about the Life of Breath project um, and about lungs. Um, and uh, we were joined by your colleague, Dr. Javi Carroll, and then Sarah Milov, who's at the University of Virginia. And that day, there were 36,475 deaths in the, in the UK. Um, so again, it's almost like two different, two different worlds, really, between now and then. I wanted to follow up about Dr. Osman for a second. Is he the first um, physician at your hospital who, who died of COVID? No. No. Um, we've had uh, a couple of nurses uh, passed away as well. And... Um... Uh, other members staff, I think we've had four now. Is there any kind of, a, I don't know how to ask this question, is, has there become a sort of a, a way to, to memorialize staff? Help no, in the, in, that, you know, that's the tragedy within a tragedy. You know, you need to be with each other and share your grief, and that, that's not been possible. Um, mm -hmm. uh, we, there, there have been memorials, virtual memorials. Um, but, uh, but the regulations around funerals are very strict as well in terms of who can physically be there. So no, we, we've not. We've, we've tried to do our best as an organisation to to acknowledge and to uh, and to share and remember. But it's been very difficult. And, uh, that's that's not a, not allowed the grieving to happen as, as it should do. Esther, let me turn to you. Um, good to see you as always, and um, tell us a little bit about what's happening. You're calling from Philadelphia, I take it. Yeah, so Philadelphia is um, experiencing a decline in cases, and uh, arguably this was the downslope of our second wave, but we've had a dramatic decline in cases in the last several weeks. Um, um, our positivity rate's gone from 30% to 6%, and we're seeing maybe three to 400 new cases a day, which is still a lot, but it's far less than a thousand or more cases a day. And um, the health department here has loosened restrictions. The, there is now indoor dining allowed, uh, gyms are open, um, you know, things, while there's recommendations for mask wearing and social distancing, um, the restrictions with respect to COVID protections are, are looser. And we're even seeing demand for tests go down. Um, we see that in the, in the test sites that I work with at the health department in Philadelphia, but I think broadly we're seeing the demand for testing go down and the numbers of cases are, have gone down. And then I, it, I think that's consistent with what's happening across the United States where even the hardest hit places like Southern California and Texas are, are seeing that things are better. Um, and the reaction in most of these places is to loosen restrictions and open up again, which I think poses a certain degree of risk um, in light of ongoing uh, transmission and, and the introduction of new variants that, that might in fact represent a threat. I just want to follow up on that a little bit. I'm, I'm encouraged to hear that report from, from Philadelphia. At the, at the same time, the death statistics have been startling. And, and we were up over the 4,000 number right about the time um, 
that everything was happening in Washington in that first week of, of January, was that a, a Christmas effect? So somehow that's, we shouldn't see that as a sort of new normal that we're going to have to live with because I, I'm having trouble squaring those numbers, which I guess I'm still recovering from being so startled by moving past that 4,000 a day number to what you're describing now, which is a much more hopeful sort of picture. You're talking to me in the United States? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, remember though, deaths will lag reported cases by a good three to four weeks. And mm -hmm. so I think we have to wait and see what happens in the coming month. But one would expect if the trend in new cases continues to decline, we will see deaths start to decline as well. Um, and I think some of our control measures have been more effective. I think we've reduced the number of cases in, in the highest risk folks, like severely elderly people. We're starting to vaccinate our nursing home patients and in staff. So we'll see. But I would hope that absent uh, significant transmission of new variants, um, we'll start to see deaths decline as well. It's still a crazy number, uh, you know, what, you're, what we're seeing. And the fact that we're well over 400,000 total deaths for me is astonishing. You know, the 1918 influenza pandemic killed, they say, roughly 675,000 uh, um, Americans. And if you would ask me a year ago or two years ago, if we were going to have a pandemic, would we see that kind of mortality? I would say, absolutely not. This is the era of modern healthcare. <laughs> we will we'll do much better. And yet I think it's quite likely we will end up with a, a total number that's close to that. Again, I, but, you know, in terms of what we can expect, I think Everything depends on these variants and the degree to which they take hold here. I think that can really turn around a, a positive trend. James can probably speak to that more with more practical experience, unfortunately. Well, James, let me bring you in on, on the sort of bigger picture of what you're seeing in, in the UK and, and just to what Esther was saying about these variants. I read a story today that said, um, there's some discussion about new public health advice, which may be telling people to wear two masks or to shop for better masks. We've had so much trouble with communication around masks and actual yeah. protests around masks in the United States. I really am, am concerned if we try to come in and then do another piece of education in the middle of the pandemic. But it seems like that's just one that was just one story about the variants. Yeah, but yeah. take us into the bigger picture in the UK, James. So I think, the, yeah, the UK variant um, uh, clearly drove, accelerated the second wave, but was not the sole reason for it. The, the uh, proportion of new cases that were new variant was that in London and the southeast started, you know, and about 20% of all cases were the new variant, and then it's ramped up. Um, but the new variant was a, the, 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 this, this wave that we're in now is, a, is largely a result of a delayed lockdown. Um, so the government was advised by our, our sage scientists um, to lock down in December, but but delayed locking down um, for at least three weeks. So um, our peak is largely a response to that. Um, uh, yeah, I think that it was it served their purposes to say that that, that this wave is driven largely by the, the new the new variant, but I don't think that's that's entirely true. The trans increased transmissibility we think is around about 30% increased transmissibility uh, from the data and the modeling. Uh, the mortality associated with the, the UK variants, um, um, it, there's no hard data that says that it's any more um, fatal. Um, there was, we, surprisingly, the Prime Minister did share some preliminary data suggesting that there may be a signal to increase mortality. Um, but again, within margin of area, and I'm not quite sure, there was some puzzlement as to why that data was shared, um, perhaps to do with messaging. Um, 
but um, so uh, you know that that's an important part. The new variant has now taken hold, and it is the predominant variant across the UK. So it's spread from London, um, southwest, and into uh, to into South Wales. Um, we have got the South African and the, and one of the Brazilian variants here as well. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's but we do do a lot of genomics in this country, so we're, we're looking for it. Um, so there was a sense that when we were hitting the international headlines as being, you know, let's uh, shut, shut the UK down, there's a hotbed of muta mutations. I think it's just that we, we just got the labs up and we're looking for it intensively. Um, I, sus and I suspect it's been uh, a, a global issue, but just not seen. I, I'm going to stay with this because I have to say, I, I, I need to bring my level of knowledge up on the variants here um, and quickly. And so a couple things. One, that what you said, James, which very interesting, that is some advantage to political leadership to pegging an increase in infections to a variant yeah so so the lot you know the, the i think that the the uh I'm, i don't really want to uh, to kind of nail my political colors to the mass necessarily but i want to be very objective about this sure but, um so you know it's a national event the third lockdown the the prime minister takes a prime time slot and speaks to the nation and in that address, which is scheduled for eight o'clock on a Tuesday evening, you know, on the 5th of January, your kids are about to go to school the next day. Uh, and he said, I'm very sorry to say, I don't want, you know, don't want to have to do this, but we're shutting down and you're not going to school. And it's all because of the new variant. And I'm afraid that a lot of us who follow this don't have to be scientists or physicians to understand that we knew it was inevitable in December that we were going into a place that was very, very dark in terms of our numbers and our trajectory, which was exponential growth in cases. It was very, very clear to everybody that, could, that you know, was engaging with the, just the mainstream media. So it didn't seem right. It, it felt as though it was a, a political, uh, a defensive measure. It's, not, it's, it's as if it's out of our hands. It's the, it's the new, it's the new uh, 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 mutation. It's nothing to do with the fact that we didn't follow advice. Um, uh, you know, there's been a lot of mantra here about following the science, um, but I'm not entirely sure when your national independent body, SAGE, is, is telling you two weeks, three weeks before you do to have a national, national lockdown, you don't. We don't. Um, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I'd, I'd finished. We don't have a great correlate here in the United States because our federal government only started paying much attention to this um, on January 20th some parts of the federal government, I should say. Yeah. Um, but I wonder, Esther, same question back to you about the variants. How, how have you seen the discussion in public health circles that you follow around the impact of the variants? Um, does it actually warrant different public health messaging, different public health measures? And I want to turn to the vaccine here in a minute, because this is the main question people are asking is, will it render the vaccines that are now available somehow less effective or even inoperable? Yeah, we don't know a lot about the variants in this country because we do very little sequencing. We have really weak genomic surveillance, and it's going to take a while for CDC to ramp that up to the place where we need to be to really be tracking this. I think we know that the UK variant um, is in at least 50% 50, uh, 50 of the states, of so 26 states, but the prevalence of the variant, I think, is poorly understood. And we have selected reports of 
uh, the Brazilian variant and the South African variant being here, but we have no sense of how prevalent uh, the variants really are. Um, I, I don't think the public health messaging has changed much. I think it is being these the recognition of these variants is being used to encourage people to do what we've been recommending all along, which is to say wear masks, um, you know, limit social act, social interactions. I think it will make it harder to open schools um, in, in light of these concerns. Uh, you asked about the double masking issue, and I have to confess I struggle with that because um, it's not completely clear to me that uh, these that uh, cases are occurring due to the variant at any, we don't know what the degree to which that's happening, or that they represent single mask failures or, or failures of just simple surgical masks. So we see every day on the news, you know, bars are packed, restaurants are filled, I mean, are filled with people not masking. So it's not clear to me that this ongoing transmission or even, you know, transmission of these novel variants is, is uh, happening because masks are failing. I think people just really aren't wearing them. There's no harm in double masking or wearing medical grade masks, but I think people underestimate how hard it is to wear an N95 respirator in the community, much less in a healthcare facility. Um, I don't think recommending the, their use widely makes a lot of sense, particularly in the context of the, of the U.S. where we have a lot of PPE shortage, uh, right, protective right. equipment shortage. So I struggle with the double mask recommendation. I'm seeing it more and more. Um, you know, I, it might make sense in certain healthcare contexts. I'm not sure as a public stra message strategy, it's going to prevent a lot of cases. I think we just have to get people to do the basic things and do them consistently. That's, that's my view. And the issue around Immune evasion, I think, is the biggest fear in public health and infectious disease circles. That these new variants, uh, particularly the Brazilian, the Brazilian and the South African variant, um, you know, they they're more likely to have immune escape. And I think we even saw some data today. There was the Novavax trial that was published in, in South Africa that that seemed to show that uh, the subunit or part or protein vaccine was much less effective mm -hmm. um, in South Africa. Um, and much of the escaped, much of the infections were due to the South African variant. So um, that's the that's the fear that the current vaccines won't won't actually be a great match for these novel variants. The the silver lining, in my view, is just that uh, you know this isn't like flu vaccine where we're growing flu virus and inactivating it. We're actually developing vaccines with molecular targets, and we can alter the, the 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 target molecules relatively quickly and scale up production but that's still going to take time I w let me follow up on that because that was the proxy i was sort of working with in my in my mind which is you know this happens uh, every year you go get your annual influenza vaccination and then you get the flu anyway and then you you read the news and you find out that well the vaccine that you took was not really the one you know they did their best but you were not vaccinated for the strain of influenza that was most dominant in the United States that year. That's not the situation we're talking about here with COVID-19 variants, or is it similar to that in some way? Are you asking me? Yeah, um, me ask I you think, first. you know, I think it's a little bit different. I think we're slightly ahead of the game, but I mean, the phenomenon of mutations uh, accumulating and leading to, you know, drift of, you know, of, uh, of target molecules or antigens, um, 
is not, I mean, that actually um, is part of what's happening with influenza and that's part of what's happening here with influenza. Also, you never really know what strains are going to circulate. There's usually multiple strains that circulate. Um, but that's part of what's happening here. Although I think one of the surprising things is just how quickly this is happening with, with uh, SARS-CoV-2. I think, uh, you know, usually it takes a year or so <laughs> for these things to unfold with influenza. We're seeing this, this kind of these kinds of mutations accumulating in, in a significant way um, in a period of months. Maybe, you know, and I mean, it may be because there's such intense replication pressure because transmission is so high in the context of all these immunologically naive populations. Maybe once there's some hurt, you know, some reasonable degree of herd immunity, we'll see less, it won't, these mutations won't emerge quite as rapidly, but it's hard to know. It's hard to know. Um, James, let me bring you in on that. Anything else you wanted to say about the variants? And I just wanted to throw in for the record, there's an aspect of this that, I mean, troubles me. I mean, the infection rate troubles me, but also the naming, because we've had so much trouble with that throughout this entire pandemic. Donald Trump, number one, but he's not the only politician who's made a lot of the fact that these are foreign variants. And even a bit of that here, we said, well, it's a UK variant, you know, that as if it somehow that's meaningful, and maybe it's meaningful geographically in the in some broad sense, but always in the United States lately, we're just a half step away from demagoguery around an external threat, and you know, maybe UK variant to a lot of American ears doesn't sound as as threatening, but boy, you can weaponize Chinese variant or Brazilian variant or South African variant very fast yeah i completely agree i, I that was my reaction as well um and i was surprised at the lack of pushback from uk particularly in the early days when it was all about the uk variant saying look what why you know this is there was some trying to to, to communicate the fact that we were just looking for it but i suppose if you're going to call it b117 um it's not doesn't roll off the, the tongue really um uh, so yes, uh, we haven't been as, as disciplined as we should do about describing it, uh, each new variant. I think that's the speed at which it's happened and it's just the kind of the, the way that it's been able to be communicated through the, the mass media. I think the other points I wanted to bring up about the new variant that we're learning is that there's this increased transmission of around about 30% compared to the, the, the earlier variants and we think that that's due to there's more virus in the nose and the respiratory tract, there's a higher kind of viral burden. Um, rather than anything necessarily um, about the, the, the mutations within the spike protein. I mean, I'm, I'm drifting right to the edges of my expertise here, but that's as I, I understand it. The other bit of bad news is really that we, the coronaviruses are meant to be genetically stable, but they're not, uh, as, as we'd expect, and that's the, that's the worry um, from an immune perspective. And actually, I, I was listening to um, one of our, uh, our heads of, uh, of the uh, vaccine and immunology in, in London describe that actually, as we put more pressure with the with the vaccine, then you know that herd immunity might is going to kind of potentially increase the vaccine escape um, because you're going to be screening out for those that that are going to you know uh, kind of by natural selection, not natural selection, by you know herd immunity. Um, so yeah, it's a, that's a worry. 
that's very much a worry, particularly in the UK when our only strategy, exit strategy, is, is, is vaccinating the hell out of it. And uh, you know, and that you know, of, of the small victories we have got, our, our role at a vaccine has been impressive. You know, we've got to, you know, we're we're vaccinating, um, you know, almost half a million a, a day. We're up to 10% of the population now. It's over seven million vaccinations. So. Um, but that's our own. That's if that doesn't work, we haven't really got a, a functioning test, trace, and isolate, um, and that's the only protection against any type of uh, kind of uh, the new variants, really. Um, and th and that's another criticism that could be laid at the kind of government response. You look at, I think in the UK we, we're kind of asking ourselves, why are we so bad? We got you know, some of the worst case rates in the world. We're an island, you know. We we were priding ourselves before the pandemic about our flu preparedness and our plans and the international gradings would put us at the top of the list of you know, you know, wealthy states with an organized, uh, nationalized healthcare system. Why are we doing so badly? And, and um, uh, you know, that, that's, that's a question that really hasn't, hasn't been answered yet. Um, uh, but it, I think it is the, 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 the one of, another criticism has been that Public Health England, who would normally coordinate this and uh, the test, trace, and isolate, and that it would normally be kind of from the ground up, from our general practice infrastructure, our primary care, which is so good at handling these types of testing and traces, has been um, essentially um, uh, to, sold off to the highest bidder. So that, that it's been kind of um, uh, a central track and trace has not worked, and there's been a lot of money thrown at it. I would just to follow up. Let me just follow up on that that part because the, the vaccine rollout is is something we should talk about. Um, what do you account? How do you account for what you've described as a pretty successful vaccine rollout thus far? Particularly taking on board what you were just saying about um, the sort of weaknesses that you're seeing in the broader health infrastructure in the UK. Yeah. So so if you compare the the kind of the relative failure of the track and trace. That was kind of contracted out to uh, a non-NHS body that had never done it before, and so they had to start from scratch. Um, and uh, where you go to the vaccine rollout, you've got general practices in primary care embedded in the communities that do the flu vaccine program, and 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 can do do it like that. And that's exactly what they have done, and they've uh, you know trebled their capacity. And we've also got vaccine hubs, you know, but. but but the government has done well in, in setting that up. Um, and clearly their purchasing of vaccines, the research of the Oxford uh, AstraZeneca vaccine, it's all come together to, to be, you know, the early signs are of being successfully being deployed. Um, it is a stark contrast to the to test trace and uh, uh, track trace and isolate. Um, and I think that's a testament to the fact that it's, the vaccine is being delivered by the NHS infrastructure that's that's already there. I wonder if that won't become a case for reinvestment in the NHS infrastructure. Yeah, and I think that that again, part of the self-examination is is why are we doing so badly? Is that the, the health and social care has been uh, underfunded for a long time? You know, our, our critical care capacity was below the European average. Um, so, you know, intensive care beds, respirators, it was very, very starkly exposed in the first wave that we had to rapidly escalate that. Um, to the, uh, they, they did, I don't know whether you've heard about Nightingale hospitals in the UK? No. So, to much, you know, as we, as the, the, the it was clear that the, the modelling again that came out of the UK 
about the numbers that might come in in the first wave were eye-watering in terms of the people that might need to be on ventilators within weeks and there clearly weren't going to be any type of capacity within the hospital so they built new hospitals they usually essentially the convention centers so there was a one in london one in bristol um and, and dotted in the major cities and the army were drafted in to basically build these you know named after florence nightingale nightingale hospitals um to lot of you know very expensive but they were all up and running within a couple of weeks and you know um to much kind of national um celebration that we'd managed to achieve this but actually we we've hardly had put any patients in the nightingale hospitals they've laid empty essentially mm. because nobody thought to think that uh, to put together that actually you need the staff to run them and so we've uh, got all of these kind of ventilators and beds but but all the staff are just completely flawed uh, in their hospitals trying to deliver the care um so you know you can build a hospital but you need the people to to, to run it um and because of the social so if you use if you take my hospital which is a relatively big city hospital um at uh, one point in november we had around about we would we have around about uh, the numbers right 500 medical beds the rest of surgical and other disciplines and at that point 200 of them were occupied by patients who were covid positive so you're already seeing that on top of your winter pressures but when you looked at the drill down, there were some critically unwell patients there that, that couldn't be anywhere else. But actually, there were about 50% of them who were medically fit, and but were frail and needed rehab and recovery, but didn't need to be in hospital. And if the social care was there, then they could have been discharged and out of the hospital, allowing the acute hospital the, the capacity to deal with the, the, the continuation of patients mm. coming in. But because that those facilities had been not not funded we, we found that, that essentially the everybody just floods into the acute hospital beds and it becomes blocked i mean that's been the case before covid but again like everything else covid just amplifies that tenfold um so there have been so i think in manchester they repurposed uh, and maybe exeter they repurposed their repurposed their nightingale hospitals rather than the critically ill patients these patients who would ordinarily be looked after in the community by social care and services into the Nightingale hospitals to provide a little bit of capacity there, um, just exposing where the gaps are really in the, in the healthcare infrastructure. You know, what you're describing really resonates with, I think it resonates with the U.S. experience, and I want to bring Esther in on this in a second, and with a conversation I had recently with um, two historians of medicine, uh, Debbie Levine and Jacob Steer-Williams, who were talking about this, this long-standing problem of what is often called a techno fix, you know, that the vaccine, or as you described, the, it may not be too technologically sophisticated, but it's still a sort of material intervention. Let's, let's build a hospital quickly. Let, let's rush to construction or let's rush to a vaccine. And then what's exposed is we actually can do that. We, we, can, we can do that. The power of the government, or even some cases, government working with private sector can do that quickly, or in the pharmaceutical industry um, can do that. But what if you don't have the material, the human resources to, as you said, to give the shots? Um, why do we always overlook that? Why is that a perennial blind spot in not just in pandemic preparedness, but in disaster relief? Or generally, I don't have a good answer for that, but this is a resonant question, I think. Esther, I want to bring it to you just about your sense of the U.S. vaccine rollout and anything James was describing in the UK that, that you found applicable in the US or interesting to think with? 
Well, I think what he described about vaccine being the only way out in the UK is exactly where we are in the US. We have not really succeeded in implementing control measures, the non-pharmaceutical control measures, tra you know, test, trace, isolate, that has really not worked well um, and, and probably won't at this point unless we get to really low case numbers. And so I think we have to, we're all looking to vaccinate our way out of this. Um, and the rollout has been fitful, I would say. Um, you know, the, certainly the story of human resources is, um, is a big problem for us, um, particularly in public health. We just don't have you know, people at the local and state level, which is really kind of the operational, which is the business end of public health in terms of where this is going to happen. Um, we don't have people doing it. And uh, that's a huge problem. And um, every single grant I wrote when I worked for the health department, you know, paid for people, you know, paid for bodies <laughs> to do work. Um, and I think our rollout's been fitful. I think we haven't had clear information about how much supply there is. Uh, we're only dealing with two vaccines that are approved in the U.S., the uh, Pfizer and the Moderna. I believe in the U.K. There, there's more. Um, uh, I think the AstraZeneca is approved, um, but it's been slow. We've got, um, you know, uh, an unclear number of, of doses that are out there. And I think one of the things that the Biden administration is going to be doing is um, trying to be more clear with uh, state and local governments with respect to how much they can anticipate coming their way on a regular on, on a three week basis because otherwise no one could plan. And I think there's real limitations at the moment in terms of how many doses we have to, to deliver. And the way we've chosen to deliver it is a little bit opaque. Uh, has, you know, vaccines came to local and state governments. Those governments gave vaccine to hospitals, and hospitals and major healthcare facilities took care of vaccinating their own universe of priority people within within healthcare facilities. Um, there was there's a federal pharmacy partnership that is being used to immunize people in long term care, both patients as well as staff. And then um, there's a lot of fuzziness after that. Um, and, um, you know, people who are outside of those areas don't have any clear sense of how they're going to get vaccine. Um, people, there's talk about, you know, health centers, primary care practices, federally qualified health centers being the next way to give out vaccines, but there was really no plan to do that. And it's not even clear to me that there's a vaccine. Um, now that may change in the coming weeks to months. You could see there's a lot of variation from state to state <clears throat> in terms of who's getting vaccinated. And, you know, you have Tennessee running these giant you know, drive-through vaccination sites. New Jersey's also doing this. You haven't seen those in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, it's just, there's a lack of clarity in terms of um, uniformity, in terms of priorities, but also in terms of how much vaccine is coming um, and, and how to get it out most effectively. Um, in, the, in the centers where I work, which are these are primary care outpatient safety net clinics, we are gearing up to give, back, to give out vaccine. Um, which I think is the right thing to do, but we need to do that in triplicate. Um, and we need, you know, there need to be dozens of other places just like ours who are doing those within communities. The kind of thing that James was saying has worked so well in the UK, we need to ramp up significantly. And it's going to be challenging for us because we're a primary care under-resourced healthcare center so that every time we divert nurses to give out shots, that's fewer people who can help support the work of, you know, primary medical care, managing people with diabetes and blood pressure and the day-to-day -day stuff that we do um, that is staff intensive. I want to ask you a, a question that's been bothering me. My father, um, you met him on COVID calls, Steve Knowles, uh, a little earlier in January. If anybody didn't get a chance to see that episode, I hope you'll check it out. But he, he got his vaccine. I got a text from him yesterday, got vaccinated. And 
my stepmother and grandmother got theirs the two weeks before. And um, he's a pretty imperturbable guy. He's pretty level. And um, I could really hear the frustration in his voice describing, calling all around, trying to find out where he could get a vaccine, where he could get vaccinated. Um, like you would call around to find good rates for auto insurance or where you would call around to find out whether it, it just to me seems so I was so disturbed by that this idea that a, a person of his age needed to make a day or weeks to make calls all around to see where he could get it and then the stress of am I going to get there in time and what if I don't and do I have to go right now should I tell my neighbor should I tell my friends but then I thought well Hell, that's no different from the way we treat health insurance in the United States in the first place. That's no different. I mean, that's the reference point is we're used to calling around for care. I, so that's a statement more than a question. But I guess the question I want to turn to is, how do you see this, Esther? And I want to ask you about this too, James, the ethical implications of this, like from a public health ethics point of view. So we don't have a national standard on who gets the vaccine. And some states have been very clear. Texas has been very clear about that. You may not give the vaccine to high priority groups if you're measuring high priority in terms of race or ethnic identity. That can't be a consideration. So that's clearly through a filter of Texas politics, which has to do with is, with those kinds of issues. It's political from the jump. I guess I just don't understand how we approach this from an ethical perspective. Esther, can you give us some guidance on that? Well, I think you made the right point. I mean, in the U.S., uh, you know, the people who have the most access and money have the most health care. We don't have equitable access to basic things. My mother is 91, lives in Philadelphia, no longer drives, cannot wait in line for, you know, an hour or two or three, um, and has no idea where to get the vaccine. She's signing up wherever she can on her tablet. She accesses the internet through her tablet, um, but nobody's calling her. And if you go to the city health department website, you don't get any clear information about how to get a vaccine. They tell you who the priority groups are and they tell you to please sign up. They'll let you know when it might be coming your way. And yet in other states, uh, someone in her position who's 91 probably would have been able to get vaccine. And, and in this country, we live with these inequities. Um, and I think they are, uh, you know, um, it's a, it's the tragedy of the United States that we don't have equitable, universal access to basic healthcare services. And you're quite right. This access to COVID-19 vaccine is is in some ways no different than other healthcare services. Um, but our, I would like to think that you know, as a country, this will wake us up and we'll try to do something to redress this. I mean, I think some of the problems we have here in Philadelphia are are, are local. I think we have some mm. unique unique challenges and inefficiencies in the way in which the vaccines have been rolled out. And some of that has a lot to do with just the lack of information. We have no idea what the city, the city strategy is. They're working with partners and not working with partners. They're working with healthcare institutions and there's no clear message for how to get vaccine. And if you go to Pennsylvania's website, they direct you to the county level. So there is no, there's no clear information and there, and there is no equity. And I mean, I think this is, this again comes down to the fact that as a society, we have not made the choice to, to provide healthcare on a universal basis across the board. We live with this. We do. James, you're bumping up against a similar problem. I mean, you do have a national health service. Yeah, we do. I think that, um, so all the vaccines are free. Um, the, uh, 
the the we have do have a priority list which is decided by an independent body called the the, the joint committee on vaccines and immunization they've got a priority list of one to nine and the approach is that the those at most risk of dying are at the top of the list um there is a, but so and that's the order it's been done um so the top of the list is that those over 80 uh in, and in care homes and the staff looking after those people because that, that of course massively puts them at risk were the priority list and nobody else was called for vaccine um and the second in the list were um uh, the over over 75 sorry over 85 care home and, and staff then the number two was the over 80s and then the healthcare staff um so the nhs workers frontline workers and then three is over 75 four is over 70s five are the over 65s and the clin clinically extremely vulnerable and you work your way down like that now there is some kind of little bit of what we would call postcode or zip code lottery in that if you're in york They'd got they'd zip through um, their first and second um, priorities and we're on the third. So, you know, they're speaking to your mate in a different part of the country and you'd say, well, your mother's been vaccinated, but mine hasn't. So there's there's still a bit of tension there, but there's a general buy in that, that this is the ethical approach. You do it on on the basis of who's most likely going to die from it or who's most likely going to end up in hospital, because this is there's very much talking about protecting the NHS. You know, you, you, you're doing this to protect yourself and each other and you've got to protect our NHS because you're going to overwhelm our NHS. That's very kind of strong message that, that, that brings them kind of the, the thing that brings the UK together. So, but there have been calls for, well, what about the teachers? Why don't you vaccinate the teachers? Where are they on the list? What about the police? You know, so th uh, there, there is some tension, but it is an independent body that, that determines it. The other thing that's, that's relatively controversial, the two things I want to pick up, one is about the dosing. So we've just given, I say we've given, vaccinated seven and a half million, we've given the first dose to seven and a half million. And so, you know, the, the clinical trials, I forget the exact details, but they're around about six weeks apart, the two doses. And that's the, what the basis of the efficacy data is on. But there were some patients that went out to 42 days and a bit further. But we've taken the choice as a country saying, actually, we think that the immunity, you get 90% of it after your first dose. So you're going to save more people to just vaccinate as many people with the first dose first. Because the ethical argument is, if you come back in for your second dose, who are you taking that dose from? Which 80-year-old are you depriving from the first dose? So they're, what they're saying is, so, that, so we've only vaccinated half a million with their two doses, seven and a half million for their first dose. Um, so th that's controversial. There are very good kind of immunology, immunological arguments that actually that might be, more, that might be beneficial and give you longer-lasting immunity, but it, has, it is breaking from the clinical trial data, uh, mm. which, which has been been criticized the other issue if, uh, is 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 one about taking it more broadly to europe is about vaccine nationalism which is very much come to the fore at the moment in that the eu had done block purchasing of vaccines but it's been a little bit behind the uk just by a couple of months because of the processes which they sign off on these things and so there is a political crisis brewing in europe because they have not got the vaccines and the production problems with their plants in europe have, have, are now materializing. And for example, the um, contracts that AstraZeneca Oxford were to give their uh, their doses to Europe, but they're, they're only saying now they can deliver 25% of that. And uh, the Europeans, uh, the EU are saying, well, that's not acceptable. We want you to redirect the UK produced AstraZeneca vaccine to, f to fulfill that shortcoming. So, and this all comes weeks after Brexit. 
I was, yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, yeah. so we, we, you know, we're pulling ourselves apart, and then, oh, what, what, what could be the drawbacks? Oh, we don't, you know, and then here we are in the midst of a, a massive political argument about vaccine nationalism. Uh, you know, we're not out of the woods until we're all out of the woods globally. Um, but there is there is a, a, a tension that that, and there could be tit for tat. For example, if the UK government say, well, we don't want you exporting the Oxford vaccine back to Europe because they didn't get the house in order, and they say, oh, well, okay, well, we're going to withhold the um, Pfizer vaccine, which is produced at the Belgian plants. So you know, uh, it, it is a uh, a big problem that we need to avoid, but it's looking not resolved at the moment. I want to you I want to stay with this because um, well first let me remind I've been forgetting these conversations have been so good I keep forgetting I want to remind everybody you're listening to COVID calls and we're talking um, about public health and about vaccines vaccination and other issues in looking at a UK United States comparison today with James Dodd and Esther Chernak and um, we made a turn into politics a couple of times in this conversation but haven't gone directly there so I want to go there um, and so this issue around Brexit I can only imagine that that's feeding oxygen to some in the UK who would like to take a victory lap on that right now and say, see, we told you there was a good reason um, to be independent. And one of those is around national security. And let's frame uh, this pandemic as a national security issue. That's not strange, by the way, that's being done around the world. Countries are framing this as a national security issue, which is odd that you would treat a global phenomenon as a national security issue. But there you have it. I wonder if you could give us some of that UK context as you see it, James, the way the pandemic is um, perhaps exacerbating these tensions, feeding the right, maybe. I don't know if it is or not. We could talk about that in the United States as well. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it, it, we've been wrestling with the results of the Brexit, dividing the nation in half in 2016, and then years and years of failed negotiations to actually get to a point where the people driving the, the pro-Brexit kind of deal um, promised a certain deal that, that, that was never possible. Um, and it was very different when it came to the 11th hour. And it became to kind of international brinksmanship as to who would blink first. Um, and I think that dealing with, um, you know, in early, as the deadline approached the 31st of December, which was kind of where, where we, we were potentially with a no deal, uh, we were we were faced with the prospect of you know lorries backed up the motorway uh, at the cross uh, 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 an international trade stopped at the at the uh, the um, ferry terminal at Dover uh, into France and um, France particularly you know uh, were, were saying that they weren't going to take the lorry driver so and also international trade but, but the promises that there would not be no kind of um, checks on any of the goods going into Europe but clearly they would need to be and um, so the at a time when Brexit wasn't looking, looking such a hot idea, for this to come and say, well, you know, the UK actually, this is an example of where Brexit, you know, played into our hands. Of course, it had nothing to do with it. It's just that we were, we happened to, um, we could have done that anyway. 
um, and we were in a position where Oxford and AstraZeneca were work, work at UK, a Swiss company, were working closely together, and we got our supply line sorted. Um, it, yes, I can see how I have. It's it's so fresh this topic that it hasn't been manipulated yet, but it is ripe for manipulation. Uh, uh, to say I told you so exactly as you said. And I before, no that somebody will. Before I guess who I, that might be. Yeah, absolutely. Before I ask Esther this question, um, Americans uh, follow UK politics. Although I have to say, my experience is that my colleagues in Japan and Korea and Germany and the UK follow American politics much closely than we follow theirs. But still, what was your take, James, on what happened in the United States on January 6th? Uh, it was terrifying. I mean, it's been a terrifying four years to watch uh, uh, in a position uh, like me and, the, and, the, and, and my colleagues in the healthcare profession who value people who uh, speak the truth, uh, follow science and rational thinking to have uh, such a powerful and uh, close ally uh, and a world leader kind of you know, making terrifyingly inaccurate statements. Uh, both on healthcare, but also about other global issues like climate. Um, and I think that we, you know, like the rest of us, we, we kind of never, we never imagined that it would get that bad. And I think that, I think even when, he, when, when the election happened, we kind of thought that's all kind of, he's saying that, but he won't do it type of language. And I think that that, that their news, okay, he's doing it and uh, he's acting like that. And, um, so bring that forward to January, it's all, you know, you, uh, like you, obviously, I think that, that in Europe and the UK, we're numb to the fact and just saying, well, nothing surprises us anymore. Um, I think uh, everything's so scary. You hear the news about coronavirus, you're hearing the news about Brexit, you, you, and then you're seeing one of the most valuable democracies in the world. And you're saying, I can't believe that these people actually entered the building. How did that happen? And, you know, and we are potentially hours away from the, everybody's, you know, um, horror movie of 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 of, of these guys taking over. Uh, I think that's what I personally felt. Uh, and I, you know, went to bed thinking, I pray to God that that some sanity and control as uh, uh, what happens, and they're able to continue doing what they needed to do. I think, and that's the overwhelming feeling of my colleagues and friends that I talked to. And, uh, so, yeah, we just, we held our breath like the rest of the world, I think. Can I just ask you a quick follow-up? You, did you watch um, what was going on on September 11th, 2001, James? Well, I remember where I was. I was a junior doctor at Plymouth Hospital, seeing patients on the ward. Um, and we saw the images on the, the TV and we went to the doctor's mess. Um, so, yeah, that, yeah. So I remember where I was. I remember how I felt. I remember the disbelief. Um, it was and, and shared amongst us all. I've been asking people. I've been thinking a lot with these two images, these two days, mm. in which people around the world paid attention to the United States and what's happening in the United States, but in such different contexts. Mm. Um, and I, that was a question out of left field, but I was I was sort of curious. No, no, no. Well, they are. They they will. I know that I will remember them myself in the same way. Very. But I can. You know, the, the images uh, of September the 11th and the, uh, and the images of, of storming the, the Capitol will, will will stay with me. I think in the same way. Esther, what were you doing on January 6th? Were you watching? Oh yeah, 
I was here working from home. It was astonishing, uh, just astonishing to watch the vulnerability of the Capitol. And the, the feeling, I mean, this, there's something, I mean, I remember where I was on 9-11, I was working at the health department, um, developing plans for emergencies. And I was probably the only mother who didn't pick their kids up from school early that day and worked long to get at health alerts and develop surveillance systems. And that was this astonishing feeling that, oh my gosh, people want to kill us. <laughs> and, and, and some of them are actually inside the country. Um, and it was, it was a terrifying feeling. Um, and the, the feeling of fragility, vulnerability. It was a little bit like that on January, um, in January, but it, I mean, in some ways it was a little bit different um, because you could, I mean, the, the September 11 attacks from someone like me came out of nowhere. Oh my goodness, this was shocking. Whereas, you know, this, the January event was a culmination of things, you know, months and months of dog whistling and stoking of, you know, racist um, hatred. And, um, you know, what's, what was astonishing is that it got that far. And what's astonishing today, I think, is that in many respects, the, the, uh, the invective is continuing. You've got, the, you know, the Republican Party essentially running to the defense of, of, um, of the presidents and of, and of people who clearly were complicit um, that are now serving in government. It's a, it's a different kind of um, uh, terror and a different kind of being unsettled. Do you connect it to the pandemic or have you thought about the, those connections? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, pre-pandemic, you know, it wasn't like, you know, we didn't have a, prior to the pandemic, we had big issues with this mm -hmm. president, you know, cultivating um, this faction of the Republican Party and stoking hatred. Maybe the pandemic was an accelerant or has been an accelerant. Um, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. That's been on my mind a lot. And, and uh, of course, it'd be very hard to prove these sorts of things, but um, the amount of disinformation in the system, I'm not yeah. sure that we would have had that much without the pandemic. And um, the radicalization against in the United States and in other places in, in the UK as well, I think to a lesser extent, but I've seen it, the sort of anti-mask riots, anti-public health riots, um, which in the United States, were if you look at video of what happened in Michigan, let's say, and the plot to, you know, uh, kidnap Michigan's governor, Gretchen Whitmer, and those sorts of things. Uh, again, maybe those things would have happened. Certainly the mask riots wouldn't have happened without the pandemic. I just feel like it was a year in which that was, that was all coming. Um, it was, it was kindling, further kindling under that, under that fire. I guess I, I, I think about that because then I maybe as an optimist, I think, well, then if you remove the pandemic or if you reduce the pandemic, this, ex, this additional layer of disaster on top of our everyday disaster in America, then maybe that, that political unrest will ebb a little bit too. But I fear I may be naive that you don't, once you reach a certain level of that sort of tension, you don't go back. I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm reading a lot about, you know, people hoping that the Biden economic stimulus package and uh, efforts to improve the economic conditions across the country that, you know, obviously 
predispose people to hatred and disinformation, uh, you know, maybe those things will reach this highly disaffected group of people. But I, I think, you know, this pandemic of misinformation is really a problem. It's interesting, isn't it, the radicalization process, you know, when you think about what led to 9-11 and what led to the events in January, there, you know, the process in many ways is quite similar, isn't it? Um, mm -hmm. Sure. The lack of economic opportunity, um, narrowness of uh, information access. Um, yeah, I think- Cult. Cult the cults like <laughs> building around the leader, that sort of thing. I want to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls and talking to James Dodd and Esther Chernak today. Um, we're almost up on time. I want to get one more question in because it's astounding to me. Um, in addition to keeping up with the everyday disaster of this pandemic, you both actually are extremely active researchers, writing grants, doing research, publishing. So could you maybe um, each take a minute and talk a little bit about some of the research questions that are so really exciting to you right now, like things you're working on um, somehow in the midst of this pandemic or related to the pandemic? And we'll go back and forth a little bit. James, I want to start with you and then Esther, I'll come to you on that. Yeah, um, so the, the, the first one is actually relevant to the mask discussion and the, the transmission of it. So we're... Um, We've got a study, the UK government, the UK research uh, um, uh, initiative uh, had a rapid call for COVID funding and we applied with some colleagues in the Bristol Aerosol Research um, Centre um, and that's where research really takes off, is where it's interdisciplinary. So they brought their expertise on how to measure aerosols and we brought all their equipment into the hospital to measure exactly what is aerosol generating. So a lot of what we do, particularly in patients who've got uh, critically unwell with COVID and they've got uh, um, oxygen respiratory support requirements, you may have heard of the CPAP masks and, and the various oxygen delivery systems, that's considered a high risk, you know, aerosol generating intervention and a, a lot of PPE involved in healthcare around that and then separating of patients. And we were keen to know whether that was actually true. So we, we were able to develop some um, experiments in a clean environment to determine the aerosol generation from that. Um, and we also have been measuring aerosol, the effectiveness of the, the different types of masks at kind of aerosol transmission. Um, so that the headline from that study really is that actually uh, that CPAP and the respiratory support aren't aerosol generating, which is, uh, um, which is useful to know. Um, but what actually it does reinforce is that cough is, by a factor of 10, very aerosol generating. And that has direct relevance to how we think about personal protection for healthcare workers. So if you then add that knowledge that cough is a highly aerosol admission, and we think that that's going to be a, a mechanism of, of, of transmission of, of COVID-19, of uh, SARS-CoV-2, if you take that into the um, healthcare settings, then those that are most at risk are those who are with COVID-positive or suspected COVID-positive patients who are coughing. Now, at the moment, they're not, they don't need full PPE. They're just given face masks, normal surgical face masks. So I think that, um, uh, and, and they are also the ones that are getting the most infections. So the people who are in our intensive care who are wearing the full respirators aren't. So if you look at seroprevalence studies, um, so that's, that's been really useful. I think that that research hopefully will go to inform a little bit of how we refine our, our PPE and actually get it to those high risk areas to people looking after COVID positive patients. And that's been really interesting to work with the aerosol scientists to really try and get to the to kind of basic mechanism. And you're working on some long COVID research too? Yeah, we, we followed up in the first wave. We followed up our first 150 patients who were admitted with COVID-19 and wanted to see 
what what happened to them um so i mean essentially at, at 12 weeks the majority of them were still breathless and fatigued those were the two main things and i think that that those as was a small study that's been reproduced um we weren't seeing a lot of um, pulmonary fibrosis or scarring which was reassuring um uh, particularly if they weren't particularly uh, they didn't have a high oxygen requirement or respiratory failure um if they if that was relatively low the risk of them developing persistent respiratory problems was low but um uh, long covid as an entity however you want to define that i think is a big problem uh the fatigue uh, and breathlessness, the emotional and psychological well-being. We were picking up signals of that from that long COVID point of view. Hmm. Esther, same question to you. What are, what are you working on? Yeah, so my areas of interest are probably more public health oriented. Um, I just finished up a collaboration with uh, Dr. Renee Turchi at St. Christopher's Hospital for Children who works with kids with special health care challenges. And we did a large mixed method study of the disaster information needs of families who've got kids with special health care challenges during different types of disasters. And we're about to publish our findings from infectious disease pandemics um, that I think are going to lead to some pretty useful recommendations about um, promoting the role of pediatricians and primary care physicians as uh, trusted sources of information, um, working on different other, and understanding the preferred channels and um, content needs that they have in terms of infectious disease emergencies, and many of which, many of which I think were born out in the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of recognizing that families with high-risk kids are going to be not willing to come to uh, well child encounters or primary care visits, that they're going to not let people into their home like uh, like uh, physical therapists and speech therapists, um, and that they're going to uh, miss out on things like immunizations, um, and that they're going to need to have, you know, clearly sourced information from their own doctor as opposed to government, you know, tell, you know, sources via the television. Um, so we're, I'm working on that. I'm working on a project with her also that looks at the impact of home assessments, in-home assessments on emergency planning for kids with special health care challenges. Mm. And then in terms of the clinical work I'm doing, um, it's, you know, looking at the impact of COVID-19 on our primary care uh, safety net clinic network and the adapt adaptations we made for COVID-19 and uh, the, the way in which the impact are providers sense of, of our of our work and uh, patient outcomes and even just the pivot that we did for our for our network is ex pretty extraordinary um, we fit tested several hundred healthcare professionals in a month for our service for our system that's extraordinary um, wow. bought a lot of plexiglass um, pivoted to telehealth which is really unbelievable in our system um, and you know we're beginning the process of looking back and seeing how, how did we do what services did we sustain what services what gaps occurred and what were patient outcomes in that context there's a tension in disaster research always um, which we hope is productive but I worry about sometimes which is that you know does events drive funding and and so there's a wave of covid research it's it's astounding the number of papers out there already and research centers and everything you know at and so that's great but i do wonder and esther when i ask you about this to when you're writing these grants are grant agencies demanding or asking for um, sort of broader applicability of these studies? Do they want to see that you're thinking about COVID, but then also this has a sort of broader purchase in public health areas or in clinical research areas? I don't know. I mean, I had a grant rejected 
um, actually to fund the project that I just described, um, you know, several months ago. I'm not sure. I actually don't think there's a lot of funding right now through our traditional mechanisms um, that's easy to get. I would not say that. And I don't. I think our antiquated way of reviewing grant applications with study sections, I'm not sure it's nimble. Um, and so I'm, I, I can't tell. I mean, we have some internal mechanisms at Drexel to fund this related research, but I still think we have a real bottleneck in this country with respect to relatively limited funds with, for, for research. I mean, I, um, I, mean I, I have great admiration for the work that's being done in the UK and the whole recovery uh, um, trial. I, I think that, you know, there, it's no accident that the, some of the most impressive and, and effect and useful, you know, clinical research was done in the UK. And I think the finding, the, the, the biggest finding we have so far is that dex, you know, dexamethasone seems to improve the outcome of respiratory failure. I don't think we could have done that study here in the United States as efficiently as it was done in the UK. James, uh, I, I would like to, we're going to close out here in a second. I just want to get a reaction to anything Esther was saying, because this this problem of research, and, and yeah. I'm learning talking to Esther about this as well. I mean, maybe it's that the the vast production that's happened hasn't even been tied to traditional funding sources. It's it's just the... It does. Everyone, it, yeah, it does feel as though kind of COVID is hoovering up the bandwidth of the funders, and uh, there are lots of COVID calls, and... You, you think that the research is being given a free pass and uh, I, that I think that that will settle out a little bit certainly uh, grants that I've put in I mean I, operating in lung disease they always want to hear the COVID angle anyway but in terms of the practicality they want to know how you're going to mitigate against the effects of COVID on the delivery of your research um, mm. so you know you know, are you going to be able to actually recruit somebody to do lung function, for example? How could, what are the remote and digital alternatives to that? So there's always a kind of, a, if you're not, it's not a grant about COVID, you're going to have to talk about how you're going to mitigate against the effects of it. So it, it does permeate through there. But there's still, you know, there are still calls in the UK for funding on other subjects. And when I've, you know, when I've written to, uh, uh, to submit manuscripts, I've said, look, I, I realize it's not a bit about COVID. Are you still taking it? And the, and the, and the editors reassure and say, oh, yeah, for heaven's sake, please do send it in. We'll, we'll, we'll review something that's not about COVID. We're just going to wrap up now. James, uh, how, how are you doing? How's your family? Uh, you, we traded some emails. You said your mother had had COVID. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this was a, the professional and the personal kind of flipping places back in uh, November. She's well now, um, but yeah, she's um, uh, you know she she hate me for saying, but just turned seventy, a very fit and active and and robust seventy, I may say. But um, we were having a family kind of uh, Zoom meeting, and I didn't mention it in front of my brother or or the kids, but she was coughing and sniffling, and I said, "Mom, you want to stay on?" I just want to ask something. I said, how are you feeling? She goes, oh, I've just got a bit of a cold. I said, mom, you do realize that coronavirus is a cold virus. So we, <laughs> we arranged for her to have a, uh, uh, a test. And um, I think we're both surprised that it was positive. Um, but she was very, very calm. Um, but, you know, I have a, like most physicians, have a distorted view of the world. I, I clearly thought, you know, see the, 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 the worst end of things. But um, so I'm at, I got an, an oximeter sent to her in the post in a, in a, a thermometer and um yeah i was her virtual physician twice a day for two weeks until she uh, came through the other side and she was fine um and in fact on we we do see this pattern almost university around day 10 is the nadir when people get very unwell mm -hmm. and then they start to turn the corner 
Um, and so on the Saturday of day 10, she wasn't feeling great. And then the afternoon she rang me and said, I feel great. And her oxygen saturations came up. And um, I don't know whether it was antibodies kicking in, but yeah, she, she's um, fine. Um, so, but she was very calm. But actually, you know, thinking about long COVID and things, um, she, I don't, she didn't share with me her worries in the early days. Um, uh, but afterwards, she said she was, she was scared, you know, because all you hear on the news is about people dying from COVID. Um, and, um, you know, she's had the fatigue and the, the kind of the emotional kind of impact of it as well. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's close to home and having your family unwell is, is um, very stressful. And the other thing that was very, very um, difficult was the prospect that if she had become unwell, that she was in a different part of the country and that I wouldn't be able to see her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, tried to work out a few scenarios in my head. None of none of them, not all of them, were strictly legal. Um, but I, I probably would have um, broken rules to try and get to be with her. But uh, you know, keeping families apart like that is is, is a tragedy that that uh, that's indescribable. I'm glad she's doing better. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks for thanks for sharing that, uh, Esther. The image of your mom on her tablet is now burned indelibly into my mind. It's it's uh, it's an incredible image. How's your family? Oh, they're good. Thanks for asking. Uh, my mother, you know, doesn't leave her apartment very often. She spends a lot of time on her tablets writing letters to the Philadelphia Inquirer, some of which get published. Good for her. Um, and sending emails that are largely consisting of emojis someone taught her how to use them (laughs) but um, but she's you know she's waiting she's trying to figure out how to get vaccinated and i as her you know infectious disease physician public health doc daughter have been completely ineffective in helping her solve this problem um it's challenging but my kids are also out of the house and uh they're they're in their 20s now so i don't have the challenge of juggling uh work and homeschooling and, and managing a household at the moment. They're all, you know, struggling with the impact of the pandemic on their respective, you know, employment situations, but knock on wood, everybody's been okay. It's been a really illuminating conversation today. Thank you both uh, so much. I wanna remind everybody you've been listening to COVID Calls and you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time, except tomorrow when we will be on at 2.30 p.m. Eastern time. Of course, you can watch COVID Calls anytime Um, later on Periscope or listen wherever you get podcasts. I'll be talking to uh, Pennsylvania House Representative Brendan Boyle tomorrow. So please do join me at 2.30 for that. And once again, just thank James Dodd, who's now really burning the midnight oil, and Esther Chernak for this um, just really important conversation. Thanks a million today. You're welcome. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow at 2.30 p.m.